Welcome back to the next part of this Truth and Rhythm episode. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. Also become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you so much for your interest and support. Enjoy. You know, that time when you came up though, I mean, there were a lot of, um, I don't wanna say a lot, but there were some notable um, guys that kind of pushed the envelope, you know, in that period in the 80s. I'm thinking if you know your Bill Laswells and um, uh, Malcolm McLaren and stuff that was coming up, like when you were doing that too, um, were there any of those guys that you really kind of admired or looked to, or did you feel like, you know, a lot of them were kind of following your coattails, or how do you see that whole scene? Um, well, when I heard Buffalo Gals, I loved it. Malcolm McLaren's Buffalo Gals. That came out around the same time as uh, Rapper's Delight. Quote, you know, not too far after Rapper's Delight. And I love the sound of spoken word with music. I don't know why, but I did. And I was really attracted to it. So I really liked uh, Malcolm McLaren. I ended up working with him um, for months. Him and Trevor Horn. And... Um, I liked uh, Trevor Horn, what he was doing, pushing the him and Steve Lipson. Uh, they were they were an influence on me, uh, but mostly I was making it up as I went along. I, I didn't check too, you know. I checked what came on the radio. I didn't go out and search record bins and all that. And uh, I was just really into. Uh, the technology that was coming out every day. There was a new piece of gear coming out every day. And uh, Tackhead would buy the new piece of gear and we'd check it out and then move on to the next one. I had a book full of starting instructions for every machine out there for a while. You know, I had to use different equipment every day. So, but as far as influences go, um, I really liked the police in the 80s. Um, I really liked uh, um, Brian Eno um, um, and uh, 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 Mick Murphy when uh, him and uh, well, I forget his partner's name now when they had that band The System they came out with that record which is all Oberheim DMX and David uh, something David Spradley yeah that's yeah. it and uh and uh Mick Murphy and that was a big influence uh you know I went oh that, I like I like this uh and um 
the other one would have been Prince. Prince was pretty prolific at the time, but I, I liked the uh, World Famous Supreme Team. Well, they had had a record out at that time I really loved. So I was mostly influenced at that time by the, the rap music that was following, you know, what we were doing. And, you know, I remember we played a club uh, when Planet Rock came out with the Sugar Hill Gang. And uh, I knew that, you know, everything was going to change. It was funny. Um, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, they would do gigs with us. But obviously they were using turntables. And Grandmaster Flash had made himself a drum machine, you know, before they ever came out. He got a, you know, a drum sequencer out of an organ and hooked it up so he could push a button and get the sounds. And he played it on stage. And I knew where it was going right then, you know. So I, I was a little, I knew where it was going before a lot of people knew where it was going. Just by being, being lucky to be in that groundbreaking situation, you know. Like, uh, like Malcolm X, that record. You know, everybody said it was really groundbreaking, but when you're in an environment, you're in an environment where every step is a groundbreaker, you know, the only way you're going to do anything is to break some ground. So it's not that, you know, you don't really think of it that way. It's just a natural thing to do, you know. So it, it wasn't that groundbreaking. It was just if I wanted to survive in that environment, I had to break some ground, you know. I had to do something that hadn't been done. And I was surrounded with, seemed like every record that came out, it was something that no one had tried before for a while. So I was yeah, influenced those, those, by everything I heard, really. Those few years in the early 80s to mid-80s, yeah. Like every electro-funk thing was kind of superseding the, the one that came before. Yeah, like Steely Dan. Uh, they spent millions inventing a drum machine. They invented, they're the really, this engineer, I forget his name, that worked with them. He actually invented the drum machine. I didn't know it was a drum machine at the time. I thought it was Steve Gadd playing incredibly well, you know, <laughs> who played some outrageous stuff. So I was really influenced by them, too. I think, you know, I always really loved a pretty melody. I think that's what influences me the most, and that's what I love. Against a serious jazz funk bottom, and uh, anything that had those elements, or even close to those elements, grabbed me. So a lot of times I didn't even know who I was listening to. Uh, you know, back then we had cassette recorders that you could, had radios in them, and you could record off the radio. I just recorded, and check it um, well there's so so much of that was coming out and just you know small independent labels too so yeah, yeah that here and went you know you could do it back at, then but uh now it's totally different you know i'm still trying to get my head around it you know because the attention span is so small now yeah uh, you know if, if if you don't grab someone in 30 seconds forget it you know, and that's about all anybody's got time for now. And there's so much content out there. I'm not saying all of it's good, but there's a lot. There's a lot of content to weed through. But still, to this day, every once in a while, someone comes out with something that just I love. 
you know, and I don't care who they are. I don't care what anybody else thinks. I just love it, you know, so I'm happy that we can still do that. You know, the people are still reaching, you know, and it's, it's, I think there's more of it because the technology is available as given people that wouldn't have had access to be able to make a record. They can do it now in their bedroom. Yeah, so no, no excuses. It's, it's not a closed club anymore, you know. Um, so I, I like that, you know, and because they're breaking all the rules, and I love that because that's the only way you get anything interesting these days. Yeah. But there's no substitute for a beautiful melody. It just isn't. And uh, I know that sounds strange coming from me, <laughs> you know, considering some of the stuff I've well, done. Well, a little bit, but not that much because, you know, you're unique in many ways. But one of the ways specifically is coming from a natural organic drum player to embracing the electronics and drum machines, whereas so many of the people more known for, for the drum machines maybe don't have the actual, you know, drumming skills and background. So you really have merged those sensibilities together in a unique way. Can you do you do you agree with that? That you you know that the background you had grounded in actual percussion and drumming, um, how it um, not inspired but um, informed you know what you would do with electronics. Yeah, it definitely helped because to me. A keyboard on a Fairlight was a big, long drum set. It just give me a bunch of sounds, and I can make music out of them. But it's basically a percussion ensemble that I'm making. So when I make a record, the vocal, everything is, uh, uh, the keyboards, everything is, to me, it's percussion that has to help and push the groove of the music, and it's all got to fit together like a, like an African percussion circle, and uh, so I always envision it as rhythm. I don't look rhythm, in it. and you can get away with anything melodically if it's in the right space and time, um, and uh, it can be beautiful. You can break all kinds of musical rules, which I've done. I've had a lot of um, people I use to record, you know, tell me, you know, Keith, uh, what you're doing there, um, it's, it's not supposed to work. But it does. <laughs> and it sounds really good. I remember Skip McDonald asked me one time, he said, Keith, how do you come up with all these I, do you have any idea what you did here? And I, I said, no. And, you know, and he said, well, it's not supposed to work, but it works. And, he, and then, he, then he told me, how do you come up with all this? And I told him the truth. I said, it's because I don't know what I'm doing. I, I don't have any um, you know, musical rules. The only mu rules I have are based in the rhythm. So I have several rhythmical rules and I've I've always felt that a drummer's job was to find as much as he could about rhythm from anywhere um, and most at the time most drummers you know they didn't 
bother to do that, but living in England for a while really helped me because I saw the musical beyond. I met musicians that worked with several time signatures, and I, I met a lot of Indian musicians, and I, I just tried to learn as much as I could about rhythm. And uh, you can, uh, I think, you know, you should know about every rhythm going and be able to combine them. And because, uh, you know, that's half of what you're doing on the drums is the rhythm. So I was looking for new places to play. And, you know, most people play in 4-4. Most records are done in 4-4. Unless it's a jazz session, you might have, you know, You'll, you'll, you might have some diabolical time signatures when you get into fusion, but um, in, most things were in 4-4. Four, four. Most things were pocket-orientated, so I was always looking for ways to play in a place no one else was playing while keeping the groove going. Um, so looking for room to, to um, complement the music in a new and different way. So the more I knew about rhythm, the more more I had to work with. And uh, it helped me a great deal just studying rhythm, and I'm still studying now. I, I, you know, I don't have time to learn at all, but I, I'm always seeking out something new, and I always try to keep my ears open and not judge anything, just uh, try and enjoy it and and if it's something I really love, I try to learn it. You know. So have you ever uh, encountered anything that, that was hard for you to get, you know, or you just been really open to whatever you hear? Oh, it's all been hard for me to get. It's, it, you know, it's sometimes it's like giving yourself a root canal, but I, uh, I'm persistent and um, I'm not afraid to fail. So, you know, you keep failing at it, failing at it, failing at it, and then one day you're doing a gig and it comes out and you're playing. You know, oh, it's arrived, you know. If you try and force it, it's never going to happen. But um, it, drums came e easy to me in the beginning, um, and I loved gadgets, so computers. You know, I was, I was right in there, programming and everything. I loved... Loved that, and uh, so I think that combination, and then with Tackhead, I was probably the first guy to trigger samples off of uh, drums live. No one was doing that. Uh, I was doing it in its infancy, and um, I was triggering uh, vocal samples off of pads, off of my cymbals, off of my bass drum, anywhere I could set up, and when... Uh, S900 came out, it had a trigger unit in it, so I was gone then, you know, the sky's the limit. So I, I went through that for a long period um, and basically pioneered that. I used to have um, drummers asking me how I got around the delay, you know, because if you trigger something off a drum, you know, it's, it's a nanosecond behind the sound. So what I did was I just turned this, the sounds I was triggering up louder than the drums. So I, your mind seems to adjust. So I was actually playing the sounds, and that's how I got it to work in its infancy. Uh, but then 
when everyone started doing it, I remember I did a gig and uh, without any kind of drum machine or samples or anything, and I had adapted so much to this whole electronic uh, environment that I left out a lot of the things I used to do on the drums. So when I played raw drums, I really missed that. So I had to go back to the drawing board and, you know, I just learned drums all over again. Um, so now um, we're going to be doing some uh, tacket gigs when things open up. And the technologies, they've almost made what I want. Not quite yet, but they're pretty close. Um, so now I've got the, I feel confident with what I'm doing on the drums now. Uh, and the technologies pretty close to where I wanted it to be 30 years ago, 30, 40 years ago. So uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, these next Tackhead gigs because we're going to push it. We're going to push the envelope past what no one's done before on stage, basically. This, this, on. I'm not going to tell, <laughs> tell you what it is, but it's definitely uh, it, we're going to have a lot of people copying us again because, I mean, with Tackhead, all these bands were in the front row and our manager used to tell us, look, you guys got to get a vocalist, you know, because we were just using samples at the time. He said, you got to get a vocalist because these guys are stealing your stuff. They're going to get a hit with it. And several bands got hits with it, you know, before we got a vocalist. And by that time, the band was over with, you know, um, it was kind of too late. So how, how, how did you how did you start the band and how did you come up with that name? I mean, you and, and Skip and Doug obviously have been playing together for years when you finally in the late 80s, you know, came up with the name and, and put yourselves out there as a as a unified act. Well, I when I did that record, no sellout, Adrian Sherwood came to New York specifically to meet me because um, of that record. And. He convinced me to go to England and work with him. So I went to England and we did a few tracks and I really liked the way he worked, but the tracks were missing Skip and Doug as far as I was concerned. So I said, I got just two great guys to add to this mix. So my next trip over, we all, all three of us went over and it, it was a wrap, <laughs> you know, at that point. And, uh, Everybody, you know, we used to, we had a thing where we first started doing tech and see, we being recording for Sugar Hill and everything, Tackett came not too long after that. Um, we, uh, we never got a chance to try anything we wanted to try in the studio. We were always under a producer's guidance. So Tackett was the first time we had access. So we would leave. Everybody got their turn. We would leave them in the studio all night long, locked in, and we'd come back the next morning to see what they came up with. And uh, so it was a great time period. But uh, I can say, you know, we were the first ones doing that live on stage, really, um, using samples and using a drum machine. Um, and add to that, Adrian is dubbing everything that's happening on stage, he's doing a, a, a dub mix out front. So the show out front is totally different from the music on stage, you know. 
we might all be playing, but you might hear a bass drum going back and forth, panning across the room. Uh, and come to find out, you know, we tried to get a singer and everything and do the, you know, do the record company thing that they wanted us to do. Because we were like the A&R people's favorite band, you know, but nobody knew what to do with us. So come to find out, all the crazy stuff that used to happen on stage, that's what people really liked the best. Because <laughs> when we tried to become a regular, you know, identifiable band with a vocalist frontman, it, it kind of veered off from where what the people actually really liked, which was the total madness, you know, because we did a lot of improvisation with the samples, you know, we used it live. It wasn't all um, programmed and set out. I had a foot switch on the DMX. I could start and stop it whenever I wanted, change a program whenever I wanted, change samples whenever I wanted. So we would, because we had the skills to play live, that was combined. And a lot of people loved that. And uh, it was a great time period. So I'm looking forward to doing it again. But I told the guys, I don't want to do it if we're going to do the same stuff. <laughs> we we got well, to, you know, we got to break some ground here. That's what we were known for, and that's what I want to do. So. Well, hopefully, you'll still cover some of them because I mean, uh, "Friendly as a Hand Grenade" definitely was one of the better hard funk albums of the late '80s. We're going to have to cover things. We know that. I mean, we're going to have to do the game. You know, it's mandatory, and. Uh, we're going to have to do Mind at the End of the Tether, you know, songs like that. Um, but we're definitely going to take them a little step farther. You know, we'll start it with the original, but it's going to go past that. So, uh, because anybody that's going to come to those gigs is probably someone that went to the gigs back in the day or they got their kids with them, you know. Um so we owe it to them to push the envelope a bit farther and to do some of the things that they recognize as well. How, how, how did you end up uh, doing that set of covers a few years ago? We wanted to do an album. Guy had an idea to do it. Um, we still haven't released all the covers, but I thought. Unfortunately, the, the record company, they... They treated it like a science project, like collecting butterflies or something, you know, like 10 cuts of the same thing. It was like a, didn't get released the way I would have liked the scene it get released. But we did, uh, the object was to do covers, and a cover album. That was the premise. So uh, I was the only one that had a feel for it. So I ended up doing all the donkey work, putting the tracks together. And then... Uh, everyone else chimed in once, you know, the basis was there, you know, but I would take the originals, original record and just cut it up in a million bits and make a whole new arrangement out of it. And then we'd go on top and we'd use that as a glorified click. So, but it never got released properly. And it was really done for the fans where they contributed and they paid for the record. So, but I was disappointed with the release because like I said, it was, it was like a, a collector would put together something, you know, like categorizing pictures or something. It wasn't, um, and we didn't have any control over how it was released. So, uh, but there's some blazing tracks on there. Some of them haven't even been out. I was, I was going to put, we did a cover of a Hendrix tune 
um, called uh, Rainy Day Dream Away. And I mean, it is blistering. I'm going to put it up on uh, Facebook just because it never got released. It never came out. Adrian did a fast mix of it, but it's killer. So I'm, I'm going to stick it up maybe this week, give some people some free entertainment because everything's a drab out there now, you know. How did you uh, come up with, you know, the tracks that you would do? I just want to mention for the viewers, it included, uh, you know, OJ's, Funkadelic, Stevie Wonder, Meters, Ohio Players, uh, James Brown, Bob Marley. How did we come up with the list of what covers? Were those do? just personal favorites of all you guys? or? Well, everybody chimed in with all the tunes they thought might work, and then... Once you start working on something and try to come up with an, an idea for it, certain things, certain tracks jump out. And uh, so we went with the tracks that actually worked. It's pretty simple, really. You know, out of hundreds of tracks, there's only certain ones everyone felt like, oh, yeah, let's do it. You know, we really wanted to cover this, you know. And we tried a lot of tracks and. Some of them didn't work. Some of them really worked well. I mean, we did, we did uh, a cover of uh, oh, "Walk on the Wild Side," and Adrian absolutely hated that track. But I loved it. You know, the way we covered it was really killing. I don't think that made the album either. I should put that up. But uh, we 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 said, okay, Adrian. Well, you know, he had a few of his friends, you know, chums come over, and we played it for them. And they said. Oh, this is brilliant! You know, and Adrian hated it. You know, so everyone had their favorites, and that uh, wasn't, you know, it wasn't one of those albums where uh, um, everybody liked everything on it. You know, like us doing a a, a a version of a wonderful world. You know, it's like Tackett doing a version of it's a wonderful world. I mean, that's kind of out there. Um, that's like salt and pepper, some oil and vinegar, you know. And uh, so, I but I, I found it a lot of fun. I really enjoyed putting those tracks together and hearing the result, you know, because uh, a lot of those tunes I loved, you know. Um, I loved that Hendrix album. That was a huge influence on me as a kid, Electric Ladyland. I used to just put the speakers on either side of my head and listen to the stereo panning that they were doing back then. Beatles were the only other ones that did that, really. You know, took it. And it was funny. I used to listen to parts of Hendrix's album, and I was thinking, where did he get these sounds? Where did he get these sounds? How did he come up with that? And when I got a little older, you know, in my 20s, or, or I was 18, I tried LSD, and that I found out where Hendrix got up and got those sounds. <laughs> I heard him. <laughs> Only tried it once, though. That was enough for me. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the choices on that covers record, though, so many of those are just perennial favorites of mine. So, I mean, if you're, you know, deep into funk and rock, you know, those are just prime choices. So I was curious... Uh, how you had was, to... I love the Stones track we did. Um, that was a good one. Bernard Fowler actually released that on his on one of his albums, and uh, I forget the. I think he got Chuck D or somebody to rap on it, but uh, 
I was a little disappointed because he didn't say Tackett. <laughs> he, told me, he said everyone else but Tackett. So, but he said, well, everyone should know it's Tackett. It's, you know, so I said, okay. But I, I really enjoyed that um, version. I think Bernard played it for Keith Richard. Um, Can You Hear Me Knocking was the track that we covered. And Keith said, wow, that's funky as hell. You know, he loved it. So that was, it was worth doing it for that, you know, and because uh, the Stones really, to me, when I was a kid, they were like a funk band. They really were. They were raw. They were like a funk blues band or something. Mm -hmm. Even though I knew nothing about blues, you know, I, I, I didn't know, I didn't make the distinction. I just knew what music that I liked, you know, and uh, seemed like everything they did kind of grabbed me, you know, it was, it was is great um i think uh it's it's unfortunate uh or i'm very fortunate that uh i grew up in the time period i did with uh because yeah. that, that as frank zappa said i know you've seen that interview where he says well you know they put out anything back then to see if it's sold they didn't have an a and r guy telling you what you should listen to and that was a wonderful period in music because there were no holes barred. And, you know, with the fusion thing coming out, it was like, gee, the, the crazier the better, you know, as far as the record companies were concerned because they would just put it out and see if it sold. And if it sold, they'd put out another one, you know, so. Every year, too, yeah. Yeah, I, I hope it goes back to that, you know, where there's people just, musicians feel free to, put out something that they like. I think it's really coming back to that now because you've got these A&R people out of the way because, you know, artists can sell directly to their fans. They can come out of nowhere. They can come off a YouTube channel. If they do something people like, that's all you need. You know, if enough people like it, it's a hit. <laughs> yeah, you don't have that barrier or limitation, you know. So. Right. I was getting, you mentioned Chuck D, and I was thinking that Public Enemy was probably one of those ones uh, that when they came along, you were probably digging that production, I'm thinking, too. Well, I mean, I lived, at the time, I lived on 14th Street and 6th in New York City. I had a big loft there. And uh, if I wanted to hear what was hot, all I had to do was walk out on a fire escape. I mean, all day long, it was <laughs> fight the power. <laughs> it was, and I loved what they would they had done with the uh, the scratching, the the whole alarm, the siren type sound. I loved that. I said, oh man, that's it was like a heavy metal guitar. It was like the first time hearing Hendrix or something. So I definitely dug them. And uh, obviously, I think they're probably influ influenced by me with the, the commentary. You know, it, you know, because I did the Malcolm X record. Because when I did that. Malcolm was an untouchable subject, man. I mean, you know, I had journalists calling me from all over the world, cussing me out. You can't do that, with, you know. And, but it let everyone know it's okay. It's okay to use Malcolm. It's okay. And I think I just kind of opened the door for that. Because, uh, so, uh, but I when I heard that record, I didn't know they were, might have been influenced by me. I think I read it somewhere. One of them, one of the guys said they they were influenced by that record. Uh, but I just loved it when it came out. Uh, 
I mean, that's all you heard on my street for at least a month. Hot summer, all day long. That's all I heard coming out of people's cars, radios, everything. So, yeah, that was an influence. I tried my best to get a record to... I tried, I got DJs in trying to get that siren type effect feeling on a record and I just couldn't get there. I don't know how they did it to this day. <laughs> I salute you, public enemy. What, what was uh, Arthur Baker and Africa Bambada? What were those guys like? Well, Africa Bambada, I, I really didn't get to know him very well. It was like, uh, he was just like a really quiet, soft-spoken, tell me what he liked, but we basically worked with him because I was producing records for Tommy Boy. So it was a natural connection and it was more, I only really saw him on sessions and a few, I remember the last time I saw Ben Bada, it was at a gig Tackhead was doing and he thrashed us with our own records. <laughs> When he was pulling out Sugar Hill records and everything, he wore the audience out. By the time we got on stage, we were playing with Mark Stewart. He had worn everybody out. And, uh, <laughs> so he, but um, I never really got to know Bam very well. Uh, working with him was easy. Um, and who's the other guy you asked about? Uh, Arthur Baker. Ar now, Arthur. Arthur was a strange guy to work with because you never knew what Arthur was going to. Arthur was like a good listener. You know, Arthur was like almost like a record store owner that became a producer. You know what I mean? And Arthur was kind of like me in the sense of he knew what he liked, you know, and he would do whatever he needed to do to get what he liked. So, uh, and he, he was surrounded with some very uh, good people at the time when, he did, when they did Planet Rock. Okay, that was the groundbreaker. Um, that was basically John Roby doing incredible edit, edit, edits, you know, edits no one had ever thought of doing before John Roby came along. And Jay Burnett, the engineer who hooked up all that stuff to make it work. And then Arthur, Arthur's role was Arthur dubbed the mix. You know, with mutes like like a dub artist would do. So it was really three people, and then uh, a lot of the raps on there. You know, in retrospect, were accidents really. Um, and they were working at a studio in New York at the time that uh, was it was a groundbreaking studio called Unique Recording, and they had all the gear that nobody else had, and it was all in the price of the studio. So you didn't have to pay extra to rent it or anything. And everybody working there was a groundbreaker. All these young, great guys, Romy Shamir, Chris Lord Algae, Tom Lord Algae, I gave him his first session. You know, all these brilliant guys in the business were all young kids trying to make their mark at that time, all working at that studio. So uh, Arthur was in good company, <laughs> definitely. And... Uh, but Arthur's basically a DJ, you know, really, you know, he's kind of, you know, like, uh, he's got a DJ mind, 
you know. And uh, and he, we used to do a lot of recording for Arthur, tons. I mean, uh, Sun City album. Me and Doug, we should have got the most valuable player award on that album. We cut on everything. We were on call 24 hours a day, all for free. And But we did it because we got to work with some of our heroes, you know. Mm -hmm. I got to cut a track with Jaco Pastorius because of that album. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a Jimmy Cliff track. And uh, I think it was like one of the last tracks Jaco did. And... Um, so, got to work with Miles Davis, Tony Williams. I got to stand right in back of Herbie Hancock and watch him cut. That was, you know, I'll remember that the rest of my life. Um, Bruce Springsteen, you know, uh, Big Youth. Uh, the list was endless. So, it was a great experience doing it. And we got an award from the UN for doing that. And right after that, the whole apartheid thing, it worked. It disappeared. So yeah. we accomplished our purpose. And, you know, Stevie Van Zant was a, a little tyrant boy. He was, I saw him fire more engineers. It was hilarious. But I love him because he knew what he wanted to get and he pulled it off. So that was a, that was a good experience, too. Well, it sounds like he was uh, well, well suited for that Sopranos role. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yeah, I think, yeah, I, you know, you might be right. I mean, Stevie Van Zandt, he's like, he's a, like a rock star gangster. He, he was before The Sopranos, even before they even thought of that show. So, yeah, not that he did gangster stuff, but that mentality. You know, right. he, he wouldn't go for anything less than what he needed, you know, which I, I respect that. How, you know, you brought up some big names, and you worked with some big names. How did you get, you know, connected with people like uh, Tina Turner and uh, some of those other people I mentioned, like Peter Gabriel, and also want your, your take on Trent Reznor, too, so. Trent. Well, Trent, I mean, when I met Trent, I was trying to move to England because, uh, there was more work for me there than in New York City after No Sellout came out. It was huge in England. So I was flying over there all the time. And uh, so a uh, guy from TVT Records asked me to work with Trent. Trent came to me with demos on cassette. Stuff was horrible. I thought the music, I thought the album was crap. And so I sat there for about a week uh, programming. He had a... Trent came in with, I didn't even know he played guitar or anything, and he came in with a, a Macintosh, one of the first Macs that you could program on. So I would put in, basically he ran the computer and I would play in all the beats. And because he was checking all the Mark Stewart stuff and Tackhead stuff we were doing, so he wanted to sound like that. And um, I hated the music. I thought it was a bad copy of Mark Stewart, but I did the best I tried to make it live, and then uh, he went away, went back to Ohio, and then he came back with the guitars on it, and he had put guitars and vocals and everything, so I mixed the whole album. And uh, I don't think we spoke since then, because uh, I was mixing the album, and uh, he started, he, one track he wanted to revoice it, 
And, you know, I know you could think you can do that when you're listening to it, but going in there and actually doing it again, it's a whole other thing. So I had to interrupt the mix. We set up for a vocal, and he couldn't do it. And then he kept bugging me with the edits. But I must say, he, when I did something that he liked, he let me know he liked it, you know? So the last track, he kept bugging me about the edits. He didn't like the edits. And I said, okay, Trent, you finish it. I, and I split. And they offered me publishing, and I, uh, so basically, you know, I left the studio like that, and I never spoke to him after that, uh, except for doing some remixes and things for him. And uh, it was funny. They offered me publishing, and I, I needed money to, to move to England, so I said I wanted cash. And then I was in England for years, and I had no idea that this album I had done it's like a massive hit here in the state. Pretty Hate Machine is what we're talking about, right? Right, right. Yeah. It was his first album. I had no idea it was like this massive hit. And, you know, because I, I was heads down working in the studio every day, you know, next project, next project. I didn't really think about it. And then uh, Trent called me and Adrian up and wanted us to make him some samples to use on a project. So we, we went to the studio for a day. We had a ball. We, we just made this whole big sample reel for him just do you know making them putting them through the desk doing weird stuff to him and uh about a year after that i saw the movie seven which trent had done the opening soundtrack for that and i heard 90 percent of the samples we had made him but what he had done with it was pure genius i and right then I went, oh, I love this guy. You know, it took a long time for the penny to drop with me for Trent. Um, now I think I think the guy's a genius, actually. You know, after hearing that one track, what he did with the raw material we gave him, I, I loved it. And uh, so I loved him ever since I heard that track. And um, the... Uh, but I didn't like the album too much, Pretty Hate Machine. It was, I don't know, because that style of music I had been doing for years by then, and I was kind of tired of that genre, really, and I wanted to move on. That's probably why I was tainted with that. Um, it, it helped bring it more to the mainstream, though, at that time. I had, who had a clue? You know, like I said, I, I just gravitate towards things I like and I really don't care what anybody thinks when it, and it, that's that's a uh, to a fault really um, but you know I really the people I met and worked with it's just kind of by accident one thing led to another thing led to another thing like I met Trevor Horn and we got along really good and I and uh, I liked I liked him because he used to take big chances and try things that no one would try. And uh, so through Trevor Horn, I met, you know, I got to work with Tina Turner. And, uh, you know, a, lo a lot of great people um, just knowing him. So, you know, I might need, meet one producer that likes me and he wants to use me on a bunch of stuff. Like, I didn't really know Rick Rubin that well. Um, the first time I met him, I think I threw him out of the studio. Because he came up to me and he goes, make sure the vocals are loud enough, Keith. I said, get this guy out of here, you know. <laughs> and, um, but after that, Rick, he hired me to cut a 
bunch of rap tracks at uh, one of the studios in New York. And um, then I heard some of his productions, and I really, I really loved what he did. But I was just an idiot most of the time, and just like I had blinders on. Okay, I'm going to do this project, anything that's interrupting that. And I didn't really think about it. And really for me, whatever someone's name was, um, I don't know why, but I just wasn't really impressed unless they actually could really do it. Because I met a lot of name artists that really couldn't pull it off. You know, they had to punch their vocal in a million times. They couldn't just go and do it. And uh, then I met a lot of artists that could, like uh, Tina Turner's one that could. Just lay it down. Annie Lennox, go in there and bang it down. Seal, go in there and kill it, you know? Uh, so that's how I met Seal, was through Trevor Horn. Um, so it's just really luck, right place at the right time, really. And, and having the right, do, be doing the right thing that people want to use at that particular time. So uh, it, I was just lucky at the end of the day, I think. Did you get to meet James Brown? Yeah, several times. James, uh, it's funny, James did the new music seminar, which Tom Silverman uh, invented, and he also owned Tommy Boy Records. So um, we got to meet James on that, and we got introduced to James, and he, he was really cool. And uh, then uh, he came in the studio to do the Bambata record, and he had to get introduced to us again. He didn't know who we were, you know. And uh, but James was really funny, nice guy. Just really fun to be around. And uh, man, when he opened up that throat, oh my goodness! They just, you know. Uh, but that was that was a lot of fun because by then he was Mr. Brown. You know, he made everyone call him Mr. Brown and. I think they, Tommy Boy had to get him a limo to go like three city blocks. You know. It was funny, though. He tried that with George Clinton. I was standing there, and George, George, uh, me and Doug were standing there. And uh, George said, listen, you try that Mr. Brown stuff with me. I'm going to embarrass you in front of all these people. <laughs> so James said, well, you know, we're going to do that record together. But classic. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of this episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. Also, become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon, or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.